Hello, and welcome to Episode 8 of Lawyers, Guns, and Money, Real Crimes, Real Trial Lawyers. I'm your host, Shelley Levesay, and this episode is going to be a little different than our other ones, as I am not going to be interviewing anyone. I'm going to be responding to Kelly Masters' op-ed in the Daily Oklahoman and the continued information being put forth by the Justice for Julius campaign that is just patently false. When I decided to start this podcast, I knew minimal information about the Julius Jones case. I had watched The Last Defense, and I had talked some with David McKenzie about the case. But then I started reading all the news articles that I could find. Eventually, I was able to get the trial transcripts and the 311 evidentiary hearing transcripts. And the more I read, the more incensed I became at the Justice for Julius campaign for their blatant attempts to gaslight the American people and the criminal justice system. Most recently, Kelly Masters posted an op-ed in the Daily Oklahoman claiming to have read the transcripts and believed that Julius was innocent for three reasons. The family alibi, the hair of the perpetrator, and lack of a photo being introduced, and a secret deal with Christopher Jordan. In my opinion, that was an irresponsible and an unethical recitation of events. First off, in regards to Christopher Jordan and the secret deal, as previously mentioned in an earlier podcast, Christopher Jordan discharged his 30 years pursuant to DOC policy. When I reviewed the case on OSCN, and feel free to do so for yourself, CF 1999-4393, Christopher Jordan entered his guilty plea to murder in the first degree on October 11, 2001. He was sentenced to life with all but the first 30 years suspended. I have since received a copy of the judgment and sentence from the Oklahoma County Court Clerk, which verifies that information. I also looked up Mr. Jordan on the DOC Offender Lookup website, and it shows that he is still on probation with the Department of Corrections. He was on supervised probation for five years after his release. Miss McPhail says in the last defense that he was just cut loose with nothing and walked away. That is a patently false statement. Mr. Jordan is still on probation, and if he screws up, the state can file to revoke the remainder of his life sentence. In addition, the 85% rule is codified in Oklahoma State Statute 21, Section 13.1, that was not in effect at the time of Paul Howell's murder in July 28, 1999. And that statute did not apply to Mr. Jordan or to Mr. Jones. It did not go into effect until November 1st of 2000. And you can look up the DOC handbook online regarding calculation of time. And it clearly states that the 85% rule did not start until November 1st of 2000. Therefore, Christopher Jordan served exactly what he was supposed to. In the recent uh, clemency application and responses filed by the state, there's an affidavit from Tanya Dickerson, who is the manager of sentence administration, offender records and registration for the Oklahoma Department of Corrections. And she outlines that, that there was no 85% rule. She further says, on November 1st, 2014, Oklahoma Department of Corrections operations was revised to clarify that when an inmate is sentenced to life suspended, except for a term of incorporation, 
split life sentence, the term of incarceration shall not be subject to Section A of 57 OS 138. Mr. Jordan's file was audited and he had accumulated enough credits, which was 5,342 earned credits, to complete his 30-year incarceration sentence and was released on December 5, 2014, to begin serving the life-suspended portion of his sentence. He was given no special favors. It's also important to note that when he pled on October 11, 2001, he received credit for time served for 815 days spent in the county jail. Remember, both Mr. Jordan and Mr. Jones were arrested within two days of the murder back in 1999. Further, Mr. Jordan's attorney, William Bach, wrote an affidavit stating the same thing. That the 85% rule applies to crimes committed on or after March 1st of 2000. He filed a sentence modification request on behalf of Christopher Jordan and the state of Oklahoma objected to it. That the district attorney's office nor him have any control over how DOC calculates sentences. Which again, anyone that practices criminal law in the state of Oklahoma knows this. And to circulate that there's something different is just a lie. His other attorney, Michelle Green, backed up what Mr. Box said. And so would anyone that is a competent criminal lawyer, whether a prosecutor or a defense lawyer, in the state of Oklahoma. Now, the second thing she talks about is the family alibi. Now, in the 311 evidentiary hearing, which obviously none of the people representing Julius Jones now have read, that family alibi was destroyed. Now, they made some good efforts in that evidentiary hearing to claim that counsel was ineffective, but Mr. McKenzie, under oath, and Mr. Savage both testified that Julius Jones told them, my family's mistaken, I was on the south side that night. They both testified to that under oath. Brenda Cujo, who is an independent person, testified in that hearing that she was there the night before, that she and Madeline Jones had been to Kinko's the night before, and there was a receipt. Now, granted, the defense lawyers did confuse her for a while on her cross-examination. However, she was very clear that it was not the date of the murder. And in fact, she said in her conversations with the Jones family, they were upset with her that she had a receipt showing it was the day before, indicating that they knew he did not have an alibi on the night of the murder. Now, in regards to this hair and the photograph of Mr. Jones. Now, not only did Mr. McKenzie strongly cross-examine Miss Toby, the only adult eyewitness, who still, 22 years later, says Julius Jones is the person that shot her brother, but they conveniently forget that a video of Julius Jones the day after the murder was recovered from the South Central Grocery, which was four blocks from Kermit Lottie's garage. That's where he met Mr. King and where they went to try to sell the Suburban, and Mr. Lottie was like, uh-uh, I know this is attached to a body. I want nothing to do with it. So Julius Jones, the jury saw what Julius Jones looked like the day after the murder. It's on video. So I don't understand this nonsense that they wanted a bookend photo 
introduced from nine days previously, most criminal defense lawyers don't want to introduce a picture of someone's mugshot. That's not helpful to your client. Further, there's a video showing exactly what Mr. Jones looked like on that date. And Miss Toby never wavered from her description and identification of Julius Jones. The fact that that's not good for them now doesn't change what the facts are. Further, let's address some other evidence in this case. Now, at the time of trial, the defense argued there was no physical evidence tying Julius Jones to this crime. However, we know in 2021, that is no longer the case. The defense decided to test the red bandana. And when they tested that red bandana, the only major contributor was Julius Jones and excluded Christopher Jordan. Now, what the defense tries to tell you is, well, it's inconclusive because there were some minor contributions that didn't come back. But what the DNA does tell you is Julius Jones's DNA was on that bandana, not Christopher Jordan. So in order to believe what the defense is saying and that he was framed, you have to believe that Christopher Jordan is lying, Liddell King is lying, Kermit Lottie is lying, and his girlfriend, Annalise Presley, is lying. You have to believe that the independent witnesses that saw two young black males driving around Edmond looking for a vehicle to steal are lying, Mike Peterson and Eki Prater. Now, the defense made a decent argument that they didn't specifically identify uh, Julius Jones, but several people put Julius Jones in that vehicle. Now, what Mr. Jones wants you to believe is that he was at home with his family, but yet that's not what he said 22 years ago to his attorneys. He told his attorneys he wasn't at home. His family's mistaken. Now, his family, according to Brenda Cujo, knew they were mistaken shortly after the trial, and when they had this hearing in 2005, she indicates that they knew and continued on with it anyway. Now, maybe they were mistaken. Maybe they don't want to believe their son's a murderer. But the reality is, there is no alibi defense for Julius Jones. Any criminal defense lawyer knows you cannot put up false testimony. And when you have your own client telling you, I wasn't there, when you have an independent witness showing a receipt to invest an investigator saying this was the day we went over there, you can't put on that evidence. Now, the defense, tri the trial defense lawyers have taken a lot of heat in this case because they didn't put on any evidence. What evidence were they supposed to put on? They can't put on false evidence. And there was mounds and mounds of evidence against Mr. Jones. What they did do is challenge each and every witness that came forward. And again, Mr. Jones's case has been reviewed by the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals. It's been reviewed by a federal district court. It's been reviewed by the Tenth Circuit. The Supreme Court did not take it, but it has been reviewed time and time again. An evidentiary hearing was done in regards to possible ineffective assistance in calling the alibi back in 2005. And again, it was upheld. No ineffective assistance was found. This trial took 19 trial days. And having reviewed the transcript, every witness was cross-examined heavily. So for them to claim he didn't receive a fair trial. Now, I could go with them if they were arguing that 
there was a racist juror and that intim- intimidated other jurors and possibly he didn't get a fair trial. I could go with that. If they said, given his youth, he shouldn't receive the death penalty. I could go with that. But the fact that they manipulated and gaslit people to convince people that he's innocent and ignored all of the facts and the evidence that have been presented is just unethical. And someone has to speak up for that. In addition, if you listen to the Howell family, who have mostly kind of stayed out of it until recently because they feel like they've been re-victimized, and they have. Miss Toby has been called into question multiple times. But if you actually read what she said in the trial transcript, she talks about hair sticking out. She very clearly says it's not corn rolls, it's not braids. She might have just met there was hair showing underneath the stocking cap, which makes sense. When you're nervous, you might say a wrong word. But the defense exploited that as far as they could go. But she has never wavered on her identification. In addition, in regards to the hair and pictures not being introduced, the prosecution introduced a bookend photo of Julius Jones two days after the murder which he looked the same as he looked like on the surveillance video. And Liddell King testified that, yes, that's exactly what he looked like. So this nonsense about, oh, they're saying he got a haircut or this and that. No, they, no, they aren't. No one is saying that. This is a huge red herring that is just meant to distract and mislead you. Let me read to you some words from Julius Jones himself to his girlfriend. He says, Dear Poca, which I believe he called her Pocahontas, This is very important to your well-being. So it's urgent that you write me back and tell me you understand, okay? Now in your statements to the police, you told them that I was going to shoot or attempt to kill Isaiah for that stolen car he sold me. Well, that hurt. Because that makes me look like I'm crazy. So you're going to have to do something for me now. Really for your safety. Not that I'm threatening you. But I got some stupid-ass relatives, you know. So if they do call you to the stand, your best bet is to say, you don't remember, unless you just don't care about me coming home. That's what you need to say. They can't arrest you or charge you with nothing for saying that, okay? If you don't believe me, ask an attorney, any attorney. I need you to hurry and write me back so I know you got this and you understand, okay? Oh, and have them tell you that they have to do this in court on the 3rd of December, you don't know how important it is for me to know, so please mail your responses before the 26th of this month, November, okay? I love you, I miss you, and I need you. P.S. Please hurry up and let me know. Now, those are Julius Jones's words. For your own well-being... I don't know how you take that letter as anything but a threat. Hey, you need to say you don't remember this, that, or the other, or I'm not going to come home. I'm not threatening you. Well, if you need to tell somebody you're not threatening them, you're clearly threatening them. Not to mention that Annalise Presley is incredibly damaging to him on the stand. And why would she lie? That was her boyfriend. No one has provided any reason as to why Miss Presley with the lie. And again, 
Miss Presley, the defense fought very hard to keep her off the witness stand in stage one. Uh, they tried to exploit a loophole where she was not on a witness list and was handwritten in, and they fought very hard to keep her off. Obviously, they did not win that fight. But I'm going to read to you a few things that Annalise Presley directly said in her testimony. Can you tell us what time frame it was that you and Mr. Jones dated? In the summer of 98 up until, I believe it was like July or August of 99. So you would consider yourself and Mr. Jones to be close to one another? Yes. I want to direct your attention specifically to the summer months of 99, and we're going to talk about June and July of 99. Did you know a man by the name of Christopher Jordan? Yes. And had you known him before the summer of 99? I went to school with him. Okay, so were you friends with him? No. So a deal where you just knew who he was? Yes. At some point, did Mr. Jordan and Mr. Jones become very good friends? Yes. And we skip on, but that's establishing how she knew Julius and Mr. Jordan. On the occasions when Mr. Jones was not with you, where was he normally? He may be with Chris or at home. And where was his home at the time? Well, he had an apartment, but I believed he was staying with his parents. Where was his apartment? Norman. Now, side note, this is important to remember because remember his apartment in Norman is where the carjacked Mercedes from the Hideaway Pizza was found with a forged paper tag on the back that matched Julius Jones's handwriting. So then they ask a few other questions. They move on. Uh, at some point, did you become aware that Mr. Jones purchased or obtained a Buick Regal? Uh, what color was it? Black? Yes. And do you have any idea when he got that? No, just sometime in the summer of 99, essentially what she says. Then did you become aware of a 72 gold-colored cutlass that Mr. Jones used on occasion? Yes. Who did that belong to? I believe they shared it, and the they she's referring to is Julius and Westside, also known as Chris Jordan. Yes. In the summer months of 99, were there times when you and Mr. Jones would drive around in a 72 Cutlass without Chris Jordan? Yes. Continuing on, that uh, there were a lot of things inside the 72 Cutlass. Uh, what kind of things would, were inside the car? T-shirts, basketball, tennis shoes. Did you have any reason to believe those belonged to Julius Jones? Yes. During the summer, did you have an occasion to see Mr. Jones with a small chrome-colored handgun? No. Have you ever said anything different than that, Miss Presley? Yes. Okay. Yes, you have said something different than that? Yes. What have you said different than that? I may have said I saw him with a gun, but the gun was in the car. It wasn't in the, his possession. Okay. Now you told the police a different story, have you not? I said the gun was in the car. You're talking about the cutlass, are you not? Yes. At that time, you found the gun inside the car. Tell us what it looked like. It was chrome-colored, square-like. Small enough to fit in the palm of your hand? I believe so. And at the time you found the gun, what were you doing inside the car? Sitting, going through it. Where was Mr. Jones? I don't know. I believe he was sitting there with me. So again, that's putting the gun in the vehicle that Mr. Jones was 
driving. Later on, further down, and when you found the gun, did you talk to Mr. Jones about having found the weapon? Yes. What did he tell you about it? For protection. So he indicated that it was for his protection? Yes. When you were looking through there, can you tell me what you found in the glove box? This comes back from her police interview. Another officer says, damn, you could make a great ex-wife going through guys' cars. Miss Pfeiffer says, you bet. Ah, there were a bunch of condoms, a box of condoms, a red bandana, and I think that was about it. So then she remembers saying that. The red bandana that you found there in the vehicle. Did you and Mr. Jones have any discussions about it? No. Was it unusual for Mr. Jones to wear a bandana? I don't remember him wearing a bandana, but I don't see a problem with having a bandana in the car. So the bandana you found inside the vehicle, you never connected that to Mr. Jones, is that correct? No. How about Mr. Jordan? Have you ever seen Mr. Jordan wear a bandana? Then, later on in the testimony, so if the murder occurred on July the 28th, which was a Wednesday, when did you have a conversation with Mr. Jones? On the 30th? Does that sound right? May have been. Did you recognize his voice on the phone? Yes. How many times had you spoken to Mr. Jones on the telephone? A lot. So, no doubt in your mind it was Mr. Jones that you were speaking to? No. And tell us what it is that you and Mr. Jones discussed with respect to the murder of Paul Howe. It was on the news, and I asked him about it, and he said that something happened in Edmond, and they think that he was involved. That's what you said to him? No, that's what he said. And did he tell you anything else, Miss Presley? That he was leaving so he could go get a lawyer to clear his name. Anything else? Not that I can remember. You gave, uh, then it goes on, refreshes her memory to something else. What she originally told the cops was, so then I asked him about that, and he said something about somebody or somebody stole a car, and he was supposed to be involved or something. So I asked him, I was like, what kind of car? Because I didn't know what kind of car it was on TV. I just knew something happened in Edmond. He was like, something that happened in Edmond. And so about that time, the man who got killed, his picture came up, and they said something about a Suburban. So I asked him, I said, was this a Suburban? And he kind of hesitated, and then he was like, and so I was like, what happened? And he was like, I don't know. He was like, somebody died, and they, uh, they think I was involved. He didn't tell me they thought he did it. He was like, well, how do you know who did it? What happened? He was like, West. West meaning West Side. Then he goes on to tell her about West Side and Day Day. But again, this is his girlfriend trying to help him, but her, t her testimony was damning. If that wasn't enough, they introduced the letters. That's damning. He fled from the second story window of a house to go find a lawyer, allegedly. Annalise Presley later on in her testimony said he indicated that he wouldn't see me again because he was about to leave town. He said he was leaving to get an attorney and he said he didn't know how long, how soon I would be able to see him again. At some point during your conversation with Mr. Jones, did he talk to you about a security camera at a grocery store he thought he might be on? Yes. Tell us about that conversation. I believe he said that he and Day Day would be, were probably on a store camera and all that's all I remember. What was significant about the store camera? That he may have been seen driving the car at a store. 
Have you had a chance to view that video? Yes. Did you recognize Mr. Jones on that videotape? Yes. Did you recognize Liddell King? I don't know who Liddell is. So that summer of 99 where Chris Jordan and Julius Jones were hanging around together, you did not know Liddell King was, is that correct? No, I didn't. The prosecutor plays the video. And again, she identifies Mr. Jones in that video. And then the, the letter, I just... So in closing, everything that the Justice for Julius campaign is throwing out there is easily disproven by the record. I encourage you to look up Christopher Jordan on OSCN and look up the laws. I will post links in regards to the 85%. What they're throwing out there is just patently false. The family alibi, the 311 evidentiary hearing clearly refutes that. The testimonies of two of his lawyers clearly state that Chris or Julius Jones told them he was on the south side. He told Annalise Presley at some point he was on the south side. What he wasn't telling people was he was at home with his family. In fact, he told them just the opposite. They're mistaken. Brenda Cujo, who had no interest, said, no, it was the night before. And if that weren't enough, let's remember that the DNA evidence that they requested that they thought would clear Mr. Jones came back to him, not Christopher Thank you for listening. And remember to rate and review us and share on social media.